Hello and welcome to Geek Between the Lines, the podcast that normally explores compelling ideas in some of our favorite geeky properties. I'm Brittany. And I'm Chris. And this week we are taking a break from our Magician's Watch Through and doing a special episode. An episode that we have not done anything like it before. Yeah. But in the midst of us particularly, and I know several of you listeners as well, feeling just really distressed by what's happening right now in Gaza and Israel. And it, it was hard to just like continue on with the podcast, go into exactly. season three. It just didn't really feel authentic <laughs> or kind of um, like it was just glossing over to look at the entertainment, which obviously you know very well that we bring in a lot of history and sociology into what we analyze and things that we have talked about so strongly in in historical contexts are happening now again and so and the policies that are being enacted mm -hmm. you know connecting to these conversations connecting to these these issues yeah, I know, you know, we were kind of going back and forth about, well, do we just continue on? Do we talk about anything specifically? But something that, like, really was a deciding factor for me is just the Palestinian refugee family that I met when I was in Jordan telling us their story and asking us to advocate for them to bring their story back with us to the United States. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, I'm going to share about that family story as well as some other experiences that I had when I was doing a very short-term study abroad in Egypt, Jordan, and then a few of us extended our stay to go and stay in the West Bank. And so, yeah, I'm going to share about a few of those stories then after that, Chris is going to talk a little bit more about the historical context, because sure, there's a lot of information out there, but if you would rather listen to our resident professor, <laughs> then uh, we'll address that here too. And obviously, neither of us are experts in this particular long ongoing conflict. Uh, I did study Middle Eastern history in university for undergrad, and obviously Chris is a history professor, but that does not mean that we are experts. Yeah. We don't even speak Arabic, so exactly. uh, yes, that is definitely a disclaimer, as well as we are not anti-Jewish. When we are talking about these different things, we are always coming at things from an anti-oppression mm -hmm. stance. And that leads us to have the opinions that we have on, on everything, Absolutely. pretty much. And, and that's the thing. The other reason is because, you know, we're facing a society where there are more and more examples of anti-Semitism and anti-Muslim hate. Mm. And... You know, for us as people who do care about this, who talk about this, who've experiences with this, we feel like it's really important to think through what language is and is not appropriate. Certainly, we do not advocate for the hatred of any and any group, you mm -hmm. know, or or 
any kind of law, policy, cultural activity, belief that people are inherently X, Y, or Z based off of their culture, their identity, their religion, anything like that. But when we see these widespread systemic issues, these oppressions, yeah, it's important to still be able to criticize those and to call those out for what they are, which in this case is a genocide. And Mm -hmm. uh, we think it's particularly important to call that out and to, to state those truths. Yeah, absolutely. And I know that it can be difficult to have the constant reminder, depending on, you know, what news sources you're getting or media. And there's also a lot of misinformation going around. Like, it can just be so heavy, so depressing. And yet, (laughs) (laughs) we hope that you will listen to this episode for the sake of, again, this family that asked me and the group I was with to continue to advocate for them back in the United States. Uh, And whether or not you are from the United States, obviously, as Americans, it is very important for us to take a stance on this. But also, wherever you're listening from, see what your politicians are saying, see what your ambassador to the United Nations is saying, what stances they're taking, because it is not just the United States that is opposing ceasefire or opposing accurate reporting or opposing generally Palestinian people. Yeah. Uh, Obviously, there are so many sources out there by Palestinians, by other Arab people, neither of which we are. So those are crucial. (laughs) Those Mm -hmm. are more important than us. But also as a part of our community and our listeners, this is a really important issue for us too. Yeah. And we do have some particular insight I think that we can provide mm-hmm. um, from our limited perspectives. That Yeah, you get a free lecture from a uh, historian. And uh, I, unlike the vast, vast, vast majority of the United States, have actually been to the region and actually been in the West Bank as well as uh, in Jerusalem. And so, yeah. Yeah. Well, why don't, why don't we start there? Can you tell us a bit more about what your time was like there? I've never spent any time in the region. You've told me, you know, a bit about it in the past. So I originally went in 2009, and the the original study abroad trip was three weeks in Egypt and Jordan. Mm-hmm. But there were four of us that decided to stay five to six days extra to be able to go and stay in the West Bank and um, go into Jerusalem. You know, there, there were a lot of wonderful experiences but I, I will tell you about some of the ones that have left a really lasting impression in terms of discrimination. Mm. So we stayed in Bethlehem. And one of the days when we were on a bus heading back there, our bus was stopped for a random search uh, by the IDF or the Israeli Defense Force. And a soldier came on the bus with his machine gun mm-hmm. and looked at everyone's documentation. The soldier forced five Palestinians into their IDF vehicle. We didn't understand Arabic or Hebrew, so we didn't know what was being communicated. But all of those five, we had seen them show the soldier their papers. Mm. 
I mean, not that it's like, oh, you don't have papers, then you should be forced into this van and detained or whatever. Obviously, that's horrible. But, like, these people had their papers with them. Like, people... There wasn't that excuse. Exactly. People are not traveling in an occupied territory without their papers Mm -hmm. because they know what will happen to them even when they do have their papers, right? And so it's like, these five people were just forced off the bus wherever they were going maybe they were going home maybe they were going to work we don't know and i literally have no idea what happened to them that's nothing that i could have found out at the time nor could i any time after that the state of israel has a very has a long history of detaining people without any reason and it is legal to do so basically like an israeli soldier can detain any palestinian at any time so i don't know if those people were taken to prison, I don't know if those people were ever let go. Palestinians are so often refused any sort of legal representation and also, yes, given reasons for why they are being detained in the first place and people spend years or decades of their life in prison for nothing. Yeah. So... That was one experience I had there. Another experience was when we were going from Bethlehem through a checkpoint into the state of Israel. And I I don't know what the situation was. There was a Palestinian who was standing next to us in line that mentioned in in the small amount of English that he had that there was something going on about one of the soldiers there were people yelling, there was an IDF officer yelling over this loudspeaker, and everybody in that line had to wait for at least an hour. And it's like, okay, we, you know, me and the three other students that were with me, like, we were there as tourists. Mm us not getting in, us being held up, it didn't matter. But for all of these Palestinians, they weren't able to get to their jobs. And I remember just being so frustrated on their behalf. Like the idea that I have no idea when I'll get to work tomorrow, or even if I will be able to get to work. Because my job is in the state of Israel. And I have to live in the West Bank. But it wasn't even just that. It was how all of these Palestinians were treated while we were waiting in the line. I distinctly remember there, there were these, these metal platforms that were like high up above our heads that people could walk on. Mm. A soldier comes out on there and is walking over all of our heads and just like that the feel of that with a m16 slung over their shoulder flailing down at us like it was so casual the feel of the situation was just like so so superior or something Mm. so like you are nothing and we can do whatever you want like that's what i felt being an outsider in the situation and being a person that when one of the people on the platform saw us they could clearly tell okay these are not palestinians in fact they look american Mm. and they literally yelled to us that like 
we could go ahead. We could just like go through the door. But I was so annoyed. I'm like, I'm not going to like skip all of these Palestinians in line just because I'm American or look American. And so I remember just looking at them and kind of making a confused face and like (laughs) shrugging like, I can't hear you clearly enough to understand what you're trying to tell us to do. And so we just waited because, and our little group was talking amongst each other like, we are not going to just walk past all these Palestinians. It felt so terrible. Not that it's like, oh, we're the martyrs standing in line. No, we're not. But it's just like, how can we just be waved through. And even when the line did start moving, when finally they made the decision to process everybody through, we brought out our passports to show them. Every Palestinian before us in line had to put their paperwork through one of those little, you know, glass things. And like they had to have their hands scanned and they literally saw us getting our American passports out and then just like, no, just go. They didn't even mm-hmm. look to see if those were actually our passports. Everybody else's bags had to be checked. They didn't lo- even look in ours. And so the bias towards Americans was clear, but obviously the discrimination against Palestinians and how all of them were treated when they're trying to get to work was also clear. And I actually went back uh During my stay, there were a few times I was able to go to internet cafes and I read one of the emails that I had written at the time to some close friends and family. And one of the things that I said was the Israeli soldiers would yell at the crowd and direct us like a herd. Seriously, I'm not over-dramatizing this. Mm. Um, That's what it felt like and how they were treating people there. Like animals. Yeah, exactly. And one of the girls in our group, she was actually a part of the ROTC program at my university, which, you know, obviously. (laughs) 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 But she was like really upset with the situation because she was telling us that these soldiers had their M16 just like casually flung over their shoulder. That was so horribly negligent Mm. and that you're never supposed to have a gun pointing down over your shoulder. That's so dangerous and everything. And she was like really upset with the lack of care that you have this life ending weapon that is just flailing over people. And it doesn't matter because those people aren't treated like people, right? Yeah, the, the, when you used the term casual before, it sounds like it's like a environment that's just, there's a constant threat of casual violence, mm-hmm. of violence mm-hmm. that could occur without any real justification, without any real consequences, but that is just normalized and constant, yeah. Yeah, I mean, in in situations like this, sadly, a word like casualty is a very dark mm-hmm. pun, right? Yeah. Because, yeah, that's how it was. It was just like, oh, this is business as usual sort of situation. So those were some of the situations that I experienced and saw firsthand when I was in the West Bank. And by the way, when I was staying in the West Bank, nobody was rude to us. They had all the right in the world to be angry at us, to... The Palestinians there. Yes, yes, the Palestinians there, to be angry at us, to be frustrated. But the people that we interacted with, they were only courteous and kind to us. 
and we were able to go to the Bethlehem Bible College mm. and talk with some people there and also this frustration over things being so characterized as oh this is a muslim versus jewish fight and that's like obviously not true about 10 percent of palestinians are christians and so it's like it's not just these religious lines this has to do with land with people having their rights taken away from them mm -hmm. people being displaced being antagonized and oppressed and living in apartheid when people like to boil it down to religion that is such an oversimplification mm -hmm. that also erases some of the voices that are there struggling as well so those were yeah some of the experience that i had when i was actually in the west bank just in five days what we experienced was tame there's so, so, so much worse that happens all the time. Israel has continued to bomb Palestinians and literally test out new weapons on them and sniper them and bulldoze schools for Palestinian children that are created by refugee organizations and so much more. But... Before that, when we were in Jordan, partway through our short study abroad, we did go to two different Palestinian refugee camps. And at the time, Palestinian refugees made up almost 60% of the Jordanian population. Wow. Which is just mind-boggling. One of the refugee camps we went to was started after 1948, which you'll get into, but that's Nakba translates to the catastrophe of displacing all mm -hmm. of the Palestinians to create the state of Israel after World War II. And then another refugee camp we went to had been created after the Arab-Israeli war started in 1967. So we went to two different ones that had been around for different amounts of time. The one that was created after 1967, when it was created, it had 5,000 tents for 26,000 refugees. So over five people to attend, right? Yeah. But over the decades, these refugee camps, they don't just stay as tents. That's not obviously viable for decades and decades. So the tents were replaced with prefabricated shelters. And then after years and years, finally, many inhabitants have been able to build concrete shelters since then. When you think of refugee camps, you often picture tents because mm -hmm. those are a lot of the pictures that we see from UNHCR and, and so on, because that is initially what happens towards the beginning of a displacement, you put up any shelters that you possibly can to shield people from the elements. Mm -hmm. But obviously these have to be replaced by other shelters because it isn't a temporary thing anymore. It is a permanent displacement. Yeah. I'm sure by the time you went, the majority of the people who were there were born there. Oh, exactly. Exactly. So the places that we, the two camps that we were able to see yeah, had a lot of concrete buildings. Sometimes there would be Arabic graffiti on some of them. There was definitely not trees. And, mm. you know, we were also in the 
June heat of <laughs> the Mediterranean. And, and it was just like, you know, the poverty level was clear. The first refugee camp that we went to, there were situations where like 15 people would be crammed into a very tiny two-bedroom kind of shack or, mm. or building. The overcrowding, trying to have all of these hundreds of thousands, well, and, and in Jordan, over two million Palestinian refugees housed in some way. Yeah. And we visited a small, severely under-resourced medical clinic in one of the refugee camps. And, like, this small clinic has to serve tens of thousands of people. And there's just absolutely no way no. they can do that adequately. And even again, without the presence of tents or whatever, there's still camps and they're still administered by the UNRWA, which is the United Nations Relief and Works Agency for Palestinian Refugees. Mm -hmm. And they're like the primary provider of education, basic health care and social services. And especially within these communities, there's still being a really high rate of unemployment mm -hmm. for obvious reasons yeah like e even though these are arabs in jordan they are not jordanians mm -hmm. both mm -hmm. culturally and nationally they don't gain citizenship actually in jordan they gave out so many citizenships actually the vast majority of palestinian refugees were granted citizenships that's good to know yeah because mm -hmm. i i know at least in lebanon it's a very rare thing from what I've understood. Yeah, to and it totally depends on what place yeah. you're in. And also, uh, a, a few years after I was there is when war broke out in Syria. Of course. And so tens of thousands of Palestinians were yet again displaced. They had tried to find refuge in Syria and mm -hmm. had for several decades and then were further displaced yet again and fled to Jordan. Yeah. But, I mean, all of this was so impacting for obvious reasons. But one of the things that, yeah, was... I, I don't even know what word to say. Like, I was privileged enough to be able to do this study abroad and then for a refugee to actually, in person, share their story and their family's story with us, these Americans, uh, whose taxes would go to displace their people is just, I don't even know what words to use yeah. there. But while we were walking through one of the refugee camps, and this was one that had more people from before the 67 mm. war that, that broke out was, I mean, <laughs> Language is hard because, like, the war has just essentially been ongoing right. since 40, 1948. But no yeah. Peace. Yeah. And we were walking around. Our professor was explaining some different things to us. And then we noticed that this boy was following us who mm -hmm. was probably about 13 or 14 years old. And clearly, 
recognized that we were foreigners <laughs> and speaking English. And so he started asking my professor some questions and talking with him. And then after a bit, the boy ran off and we were like, you know, what's, what's going on? He's like, well, he said that we should come back to his house. And, and I was like, you need to go ask your parents. <laughs> <laughs> And so then a couple minutes later, he comes running back and says that they said it's fine. Mm. And so we go and we're just like, oh, my God, what? You, like, how is this happening? I mean, even walking through these refugee camps, I just felt so like, I don't know what the right word is, dirty in a way. Like, I'm the American mm. whose country supports the policies of having all these people displaced. I'm the... I am from a place that thinks that all of these people don't matter and that upholds policies that harm them. Yeah. And not just the first great tragedy, but continual tragedies to these communities. So to be invited into the house of someone who doesn't know us, all that they know is that we are Americans <laughs> studying history <laughs> and... So this this man, the the main person that we talked to, is whose name was Mustafa, had us come in and and told us his story, which my professor translated for us. First, we all sit on the ground on these rugs, and his wife brings in tea for us, mm. of course, the hospitality, and he told us the story of how he and his family were chased out of his home at gunpoint when Israel was created in 1948. Initially, they fled to Gaza. Then later, they fled again to Jordan because the circumstances were just too difficult mm -hmm. for them to survive in Gaza. He mentioned that in Gaza, they used to call bread grace. Mm. So they went to a refugee camp in Jordan to try to find more stability and sustenance and survivability. During the conversation, he actually had the little boy go and get the deed to their family's home that was dated 1928. Wow. And these were things that we had read stories about yeah. that pa so many Palestinians had taken with them the key to the door of their house or the deed. They had taken that with them in the hopes that maybe one day they'd be able to return. And so when he brought this out, you know, he handed it to my professor. And I still remember my professor's hands were like shaking and to have this right before him not just the stories he'd read, was, yeah, just shaking. Mustafa told us about, yeah, the trees that his parents had tended to when harvested and trees that had been in their family for generations, something that most people in the West, including me, can't understand such a strong connection to particular land and history. If I was forced out of where I live at gunpoint, of course it would be traumatic, but I also wouldn't have that additional loss 
because I am not connected to the land that I live on in really any significant way. Also, obviously, I'm a settler on land that was acquired through genocide. And for Mustafa, along with so many Palestinians, he had this deep longing to return home to where his land was, to where his ancestors were buried, to his home. And another heartbreaking thing Mustafa told us was that he wanted his ashes to be brought back to where his home was after he dies. And, you know, throughout him talking to us, you know, he would cry. And, you know, the vulnerability to allow these strangers into your home, which is in a refugee camp because of their country's policies, just the the graciousness and the hospitality, the kindness, you know, if he would say something or he would start crying or he would say something like more emphatically, he would basically punctuate all the time with saying, but you're welcome here in Arabic Mm. that our, our professor would translate. And he would say it so often after what he was saying that like, I started recognizing, oh, that's what he's saying here because he wanted, even though, you know, it is such a painful situation. And even though the United States is so complicit in it, he wanted us to know that, even though I'm upset about this, you're still welcome here in my home. And he told us about the younger generations who were born in Jordan. They don't feel exactly the same way. Yeah. Because all I've ever known is here. As Jordanian citizens, they have a whole existence that doesn't have memories of where their people were before and what life was like before. And, you know, some of them, the younger generation didn't necessarily have a desire to return back because mm. this is this is their home to them. And how sad that was for him, you know, yeah. that he still has this longing and that's this painful divide, right, in generations. But also it's an acceptance that what happened to our people isn't going to change. And, yeah, he asked us to try to advocate for Palestinians because the U.S. had all the power Mm -hmm. in the circumstances, which is 100% true. The United States, through taxation, gives $3.8 billion a year to the Israeli military that does what I was describing but also so much more with just killing random people, killing disabled young Palestinians, imprisoning children, you know, dropping white phosphorus on refugee schools, basically incinerating kids from the inside out. I I mean, this, this was well documented back when I was in university in 14 years ago. And Israel has done that more than once. And it's, an international war crime. This is chemical warfare. And the West doesn't do anything about it. And they will not hold Israel accountable because they don't want to. 
And then there's illegal settlements in the West Bank and, and literally illegal because it breaks terms of agreements that they have signed on to. Again, no one holds them accountable. And Israel goes and plants really extremist Israelis. Even when I was there and we were taking the bus and we could see some of these settlements on these hilltops just geographically lording over the people whose land they occupy. And yeah, I mean, settlers who are gung-ho to go force more people off their land are quite dangerous zealots with weapons and I've seen multiple videos of some ganging up on a Palestinian who was just walking by and they beat him to the point where he's on the ground in a ball and they keep kicking him and kicking him and yeah this is just what continually keeps happening over and over and over again. There's just so much injustice. I try to bring up Palestine whenever it makes sense. I think during our Hunger Games read-through, I mentioned it probably like three, four times. Mm -hmm. It is something that is continually on my mind. And then when October 7th happened this year, it's been difficult, not just because of what's happening, but because this has been going on for decades and decades. And obviously there are some extremist Palestinians that do want genocide yeah. in, in the reverse, but the vast, vast, vast majority of Palestinians want to be treated like people, want rights. Some want to go back home, you know, and just be allowed to do that. And... Yeah, being displaced from your home is something I can never understand, even though it is in my own family history. My mm -hmm. grandfather and his family were displaced because of racist American choices with Executive Order 9066 that kicked my grandfather out of university just because he was Japanese. Absolutely no other reason. And they fled to... Wyoming and Nebraska so that they wouldn't have to be put in concentration camps, you know, and that is such a significant experience in the Japanese American community. But my grandfather, after a while, was able to come back to California, not mm -hmm. to the original place he had, the gardening business that his family had, you know, the, all of the clients have been taken over by other people by then, yeah. you know, like it wasn't the same, obviously. But imagining that they had never been able to leave and were so policed, you know, it, it just hits in different ways, even though they're very different circumstances, but both happening around the same time period mm -hmm. and both motivated by racism. So, yeah, um, I have a responsibility as an American to continually push to change the policies that are in place currently. Yeah. When I vote in primaries, I always look at the candidate's stance on Palestine because the U.S. president has so much power over Palestine. Look what Biden has done or not done to absolutely devastating 
genocidal effects. But even with that, even after returning home, after my study abroad in the Middle East and talking with people on campus about it, being a part of a Middle Eastern student organization and trying to raise awareness, but it's been over a decade since I've really been doing much and, and been involved in anything to continually advocate for Palestinians. And I haven't done enough. I don't know what enough would be, but I know I haven't done it. And I failed Mustafa's request of us in many ways. And I'm going to try to continue to endeavor to do more because we have to. We have the privilege. Our money goes to fund these things. And I hate it. I can't stand it. And we have, we have to do something. And now you know this story too. Thank you so much for sharing. I, I was particularly affected when you mentioned how Mustafa wanted his ashes to be brought mm -hmm. to his homeland because it just shows his acceptance that he'll never return. I know. Yeah. And yeah, it's just, it is a horrendous injustice that has continually been done to these people and continues to be done. And that, yeah, unfortunately we're complicit with. Yeah. I mean, it makes me so angry and it's like, I'm not the one affected by it, you know, yeah. like I'm not the one disenfranchised by this. And so, yeah, the type of graciousness and hospitality and openness and vulnerability and just human kindness and connection that was granted to us is baffling. Yeah. People whose country is literally upholding this against your people and forcing your people into displacement and poverty and disease and continued state violence, mm -hmm. police violence, military violence for those still in the West Bank and Gaza and now genocide. Yeah. And when we say genocide, we mean genocide. A lot of mainstream media is not reporting on some of the statements that people in the Israeli military or government have been saying. Things like saying Palestinians are animals. Or one person said that that's an insult to animals. Just horrendous saying destroy make it so that there's not even a memory of these people here like this is genocidal language and this is what they're carrying out uh, they intentionally cut off electricity fuel food said oh you have 24 hours to get out and the, there's only one place that they can get out of because of the blockade 
completely surrounding them except this small area to go into Egypt and then they bombed it after saying people needed to get out through that route. It's bombing hospitals particularly intentionally targeted. These are international war crimes and it's not just 11,500 plus Palestinians in Gaza that have been slaughtered, which even that sentence is horrific. But that number represents real people who have been suffering under oppression and what many people call an open air prison for so long and now are just being wiped out. And this family that I met, they had been in Gaza. You know, it's if if they had never left, this would be happening to them too. It's this boy that was following us down the street and asked for us to come to his house, you know? And I don't know what to say. It's an atrocity and needs to be stopped. Thank you again for sharing all that. Yeah, of course. It's important. That's, yeah, and that's one of the reasons why I was like, I feel like we have to say something, yeah. <laughs> do something, even though that's not what our podcast usually does. <laughs> but a window into our minds <laughs> for some of why we care about why we care about and why we try to look at the geeky, nerdy, frivolous entertainment fun through some of these lenses as well. Absolutely. But why don't we talk a little about <laughs> other history? Yeah, so I, uh, you know, obviously I haven't been to the region. I don't have that same kind of firsthand experience there. But one of the things that we've been talking about a lot about is, yeah, trying to see what we can do as beneficiaries of this police state. And for me, as someone who's teaching world history and American history, I basically changed my course schedule and my syllabus and everything around so that I can incorporate a discussion of this into those classes, because it is just something that is so important to the world right now, but for the world for so long. And we're all often not educated about it, right? Exactly. Because of how biased even education is when it's state approved yeah. and uh, propaganda saturated. Exactly. So I wanted to share, you know, to give people who, yeah, maybe you, like me, didn't have a great education about the history of this region and about how we got to where we are. Certainly most of my students didn't. And so even though I'm not an expert on this, I, I wanted to share just kind of this overview that hopefully will help you make some of the kind of connections into not only how we got here, but how changing global and local systems helped to create the situation and maintain the situation. Spoiler alert, it's imperialism, nationalism, and capitalism. So yeah, so, so just a kind of very brief ancient history. You know, much of the debate over who has sovereignty or land rights or claims to the region is tied back to things thousands of years ago. 
around 1000 BCE. <laughs> <laughs> Let's just start right back there. Yeah,、uh, is when the Jewish kingdoms of Israel and Judah were founded in the region, and in particular founded around Jerusalem. And you know, you shared with me actually something I didn't know before that this was done through its own genocide. Well, not necessarily historical genocide, but narrative genocide. Right. Yes. So, like, there are biblical accounts of. Canaanite genocide, or、um, well, various genocides of different people groups in the region. Archaeologically, there isn't a lot of backing for、mm. it having actually played out that way, but it is part of the narrative of those texts. I mean, I did a whole. I was so disturbed when I finally like. It's like, oh yeah, this is what we're reading. That's disturbing.、Uh, did a whole、uh, independent study with one of my biblical studies professors on a divine call for violence in、mm. in the Hebrew Bible, and so、um, that was oh that that was a dark semester. <laughs> I can imagine. <laughs> But yes, I mean th- there are these.、Uh, one of the books I refer is called "Show Them No Mercy." You know,、mm. things that are said or. Utterly destroy them, and not only just them and like all people, but also their animals, you、yeah. know, and and stuff like that. So, yes, th- this is in the like the narrative of those who are religious and believe in a way that takes that as more than just stories, or even if you only take it as stories, still, what is the messaging behind the stories, and also the history of being enslaved by Egyptians, right? That right. is part of that narrative as well. Yeah. So, for the you know Jewish people's claim on the region is based off of this idea that two and a half thousand years ago, you know, three thousand years ago, we had a kingdom in this region. This is our historical homeland. Of course, those kingdoms all fell around four hundred years later, and after that, there was about a thousand years of just different empires in the region: the Babylonians, the Romans, the Byzantines, the Persians, kind of coming through.、Uh, the Romans actually being the first to give the region the name Palestine, and famously being actors in Jesus's gospel and his stories in the region. But in 638, we have the Arab conquest of the region. You know, this is basically the first region that was conquered by Muslim armies, Muslim polities that started to come into existence, and the region remained under Muslim control until 1917, with just a little bit of break during the Crusades, where Christians were all like, "Well, this area is important to us, and also trade is great." So different Christian and then Muslim kingdoms kind of came in and out between 1099 and 1260 until. Ultimately, first the Mamluks and then the Ottoman Empire became the imperial administrators of the region. So, throughout all this time, the region itself is massively diverse. It has、mm-hmm. multiple ethnicities, linguistic groups, religions, all living in the region. Even as these empires and caliphates are warring with one another for control of land, the people there are very diverse. But certainly. A majority were Muslim. In 1563, a census showed that 78% of Jerusalem itself was Muslim, and about 12% Christian, 9.5% Jewish. So, you know, the Muslim majority was ongoing throughout most of this period. But I, I really want to kind of focus more on the more recent history. So I want to 
fast forward to the 19th century, uh, <laughs> where we see a number of different things occurring in the region and in other regions that become majorly impactful. One of them is, of course, the just rise of European power and the desire that Europeans have for access to new markets and trade routes and resources and things like that. And so this is the first time that we see, for example, Napoleon and the UK start coming up with ideas of, oh, maybe we can help create a Jewish state in that region to weaken the Ottomans, our enemy, a Muslim rather than Christian polity, a empire that has kept European overland trade routes to Asia closed down, you know, like all of these issues they had. But those didn't really ever actually get anywhere. The other thing that was happening in Europe at this time was the rise of nationalism, the rise of countries having new identity structures, new ideas of loyalty that was based around often ethnic or religious identity that you were a French citizen because you were French, you spoke French, you were a German citizen or, uh, you know, in the new unified German empire because you spoke German, you had these German ethnic community. And so this nationalism not only provoked greater rivalries, but in particular, it also led to more intense inside and outside groupings of people, more intense othering of people who are not considered part of your nation. And there was a massive rise of anti-Semitism throughout Europe in this period. State-sponsored and interpersonal violence and displacement of Jewish people throughout Europe, especially in Eastern Europe. In the face of this, we see a new Jewish nationalism that rises out in the late 1800s, uh, which is Zionism. Um, a concept that says, okay, just as other ethnic religious groups have either restructured their identity or at times gained independence for a new state like we had in Romania, for example, and other Eastern European states, you know, new states that gain independence based around a shared identity. What about the idea of a new Jewish state that is centered around a Jewish identity, particularly as many Jews are facing anti-Semitism and fleeing that anti-Semitism. Mm-hmm. And so because of this, we get a massive immigration into Palestine, especially to Jerusalem, from Jews, especially in Eastern Europe in the late 1800s and early 1900s. Though they were mostly yeah, rural from Eastern Europe, they are often financed by Jews throughout the world, especially wealthy Jews in Western Europe and the United States. Um, so this was you know, a project that was in many ways done both from the bottom up and the top down. Mm. So by 1905, though the majority of Palestine was still Arab Muslim, Jerusalem itself was 41% Jewish, 34% Muslim, and 25% Christian. So, you know, immigration had changed those kinds of demographics. Then the British come in. Mm. Everything changed when the British attacked. <laughs> exactly. So the Ottoman Empire enters World War One and is pretty quickly defeated by British, French, and Russian forces. And so at the end of the war, essentially the Ottoman Empire is dismantled. The core of it becomes Turkey after the Turkish Civil War. But the majority of the Ottoman Empire's vast imperial holdings become what are called mandates. Areas that are controlled by the UK or France, often with the concept of them 
eventually becoming independent states, but with the core being Western control, especially economic control of these regions for as long as possible. Um, and so Palestine becomes a region under the British mandate. In 1917, a British official creates what's called the Balfour, Balfour Declaration, which essentially says that it's the UK's policy to create a Jewish national home in British-mandated Palestine. Mm -hmm. This gets codified by a 1922 League of Nations resolution that approves the plan. For the next several next couple decades, the British continue to mandate this and have this idea of moving towards a Jewish state, but the people who live there oppose this. And so first, there are a number of local Arab opposition to this, where there's protests, sometimes violent protests, in opposition to this idea of them essentially being forced out of the area they've lived in for thousands of years, right? The, the, the Arab claim to this region comes from Muslim control for the last 1400 years, right? So they have this backlash. That backlash is successful. The UK ends up stopping any kind of immigration to Palestine, any kind of Jewish immigration to Palestine because of Arabic opposition, which then of course leads to Jewish opposition, where they start protesting both violently and non-violently against the British mandate, trying to find their own move forward. This occurs throughout World War II until the end of World War II, when imperialism is supposed to be over, and... Uh, <laughs> Spoiler alert, it's not. No, but countries around the world start gaining their independence, and what is going to happen to uk demanded Palestine becomes a question. It's also the fact that, frankly, the UK can't afford to do anything in it there anymore, as they're recovering post-war. But negotiations begin between the Western powers and Arab and Jewish officials or, or representatives about what to do with this region. At the time, Jews were about a third of the population of Palestine and owned about 7% of the land in Palestine. Arabs were the majority, owned about 20% of the land. Yeah, that deed that Mustafa had was from 1928. They were one of the few that had any legal land holdings under the mandate, right? Yeah. All of the Randall land was owned by the British and other imperialist forces, right? So we see not only the demographics but also the kind of land ownership that are at play during these negotiations. The UN General Assembly approves a partition. They, they basically say, we want a two-state solution. In this two-state solution, 56% of the land will go to the Jews. So they'll get over half of the land, and Arabs, who are still a majority, would gain the remainder. Arab authorities rejected this proposal. For obvious reasons. Yeah, and so in 1948... They go to war, where it's essentially this new declared state of Israel, which the, the Jews in the region you know, say we are now a state, and the Arab states in the region. So that's Egypt, Syria, Jordan, Transjordan, as it was known at the time, Lebanon, uh, this kind of allied Arabic force against Israel to fight over, yeah, what would be the existence of the state. The Israelis, with the backing of Western powers, not only rebuffed the attacks of the Arabs, but were able to then push further into their lands so that by the end of the war, Israel held 78% of Palestine. 
Egypt was controlling the Gaza Strip, a strip of land between Egypt and Israel, and Jordan controlled the West Bank, a larger proportion of land which included the Muslim quarter of Jerusalem. But there's also massive deaths and, as you mentioned earlier, the catastrophe, the massive displacement of Arabs. While between four and 15,000 Arabs died in that war, over 700,000 were displaced. About half the population of Palestine was displaced forcibly, um, fled violence, and mostly went into places like the West Bank, Gaza, and the nations around them. And it should be noted that one of the slogans of the whole imperial side of manipulating these situations was a people without a land for a land without people. Mm. Saying all of the Jewish people seeking refuge from the hatred and genocide in Europe are a people without a land. Yeah. And so we're going to send them to a land without people. As if Palestine didn't have anyone who lived there. Exactly. Yeah. And you're absolutely right. I can't believe I didn't mention. Of course, this also comes on the heels of the Holocaust. Yes. After the Holocaust, which uh, some estimates say killed two-thirds of the Jews in Europe, the idea of a Jewish state was seen as more necessary by certainly Jews, but also Western powers, leading to this this new system. And there were a lot of places proposed for, well, maybe we can make a Jewish state here or here, but none of the Western countries wanted to do that. Right. Nor did most of the Jews who believed in Israel, like they named mm-hmm. this Israel after the ancient kingdom, believing that they had claim to the region. Mm-hmm. And a historical claim that, in their view, predated the Muslim historical claim. So after the 1948 war, the U.S. was the first major power to recognize Israel as a state. But the following decades didn't have a ton of U.S. involvement. It really wasn't until the 1960s that the U.S. gained what has become the major American policy towards Israel, which is of a quote-unquote special relationship. (sighs) Which essentially means huge U.S. backing of the Israeli military. Money, weapons. Exactly. And so since the Kennedy administration in particular, this has been a major aspect of American foreign policy, where billions of dollars every year are sent to Israel under the most recent Memorandum of Understanding at least $3.8 billion a year are sent to Israel for military aid, resulting in at least $10 million a day sent to Israel for military aid. We don't have money for universal health care. No, but this is something that we can absolutely fund. And, you know, the rationale behind American support for Israel very much started with this Cold War mentality that Israel was a major component in the U.S.'s fight against the Soviet Union. And as the Soviet Union was trying to expand its influence into the Arab world, the U.S. found that a strong, quote-unquote, democratic support in Mm -hmm. Israel was the best way to counteract this. 
you know, similar to the way it looked at Taiwan as a quote-unquote democratic response to communist China and to other places around the world. So as the Cold War went on over the remaining decades of the Cold War, Israel became a not only a space to combat the spread of communism, but to maintain American military presence in the Middle East. Uh, one American general has even said that Israel is essentially the aircraft carrier of the Middle East for the United States, in that mm -hmm. it is a place where any kind of military operations can extend from for American military priorities. I mean, that's the thing. When Jewish people were fleeing from violence and genocide in Europe, Theos is like, oh no, we're not taking in these refugees. Oh, you're here in a boat? Turn around. I mean, yes and, right? We, we did take in more refugees than any other country, but it was certainly not all of the refugees, and we still often turned away boats. Yeah, so it's not for a real care. Yeah. As much as it is making it look like a real care. And then the problem with evangelical Christians, the state of Israel being wrapped into their idea of the end times and like what mm -hmm. needs to happen. And so you have this huge, unfortunate, mainstream Christian push for Zionism which obviously is just really sad and missing the point. <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, yeah. As someone who has held on to calling themselves a Christian with many asterisks, <laughs> it's just like so painful that Christians en masse are like supporting, killing weapons. <laughs> All of the injustices. Uh, and, you know, obviously a lot of other groups feel similarly. Mm -hmm. uh, there's a lot of Jewish people, religious Jewish people, who are against Zionism. There's obviously tons and tons of Muslims against extremism, you know. And yet it can be quite easy and, and historically so to take certain parts of texts and use those to fuel whatever the aims are. Absolutely. But, obviously, the people in the government positions making, in the military, making these decisions, it doesn't have anything to do with religion. No, they're focused on geopolitical concerns, which was the Soviet Union during the Cold War, in the years since, the threats of Iran, and then eventually post-Soviet Russia as competitors to American hegemony. Well, and it has to do with the U.S. having already burned so many bridges in the Middle East mm -hmm. and just continuously meddling, continuously invading places for no legitimate reason. And, and showing its hypocrisy in having Saudi Arabia as the other major ally in the Middle East. Mm -hmm. You know, both Saudi Arabia and Israel clearly being human rights abusers, showing the priorities of the United States in the region, which is American military supremacy, American military access, and continued economic 
access, especially to oil. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of the the changing rationale behind American support of Israel. But to go back to our timeline, so over the, the decades following this foundation of Israel as a as the ruler of most of this land, conflicts continued to occur with Arab countries in the region who continued to see this as a colonialist project, a settler colonialist project of removing Palestinians, um, removing local Muslim Arabs and replacing them with a Jewish population. And, And Jewish immigrants continued to rise during this period as well. One of the major crises was in 1967, called often the Six-Day War, though it continued for much longer with especially Palestinians, um, which also saw an Israeli victory. And in this time, Israel occupied the West Bank, Gaza Strip, and the Sinai Peninsula, a much larger area of Egyptian territory. That remained the case until 1977 with the Camp David Accords, where basically Jimmy Carter, the president of the United States, invited Menachem Begin the leader of Israel, and Anwar Sadat, the leader of Egypt, into like a two-week-long secret negotiations at Camp David, trying to get to a place where these kinds of conflicts would end. Uh, The outcome of that was that Egypt became the first Arab nation to recognize Israel as a state, a state that has the right to exist. And Menachem Begin started to have negotiations for Palestinian autonomy under Israeli-occupied lands in the West Bank and Gaza Strip. Of course, afterwards, things didn't go that way. In the 1980s, the UN Security Council declared that Israeli continued expansion into the West Bank and Gaza Strip uh, was void and went against this treaty that they signed, saying that they would move towards Palestinian autonomy of those regions. This is also a time period when the Palestinian Liberation Organization, the PLO, starts to gain power as basically a negotiator on behalf of Palestinians. But this kind of nationalist stance of the PLO was seen as problematic to Israel. And so one of the things they started doing was funding other groups in Palestinian lands that could compete with the PLO. One of them being a group of religious Islamists who didn't tie their nationalist claims to secularism, but to a Muslim identity. That essentially was what became Hamas. People are so scared of a secular leftist group. That, yeah, they will fund their their opponents. And the core of the conflict is not actually being addressed. It's actually just creating a new conflict within Palestine, that will hopefully weaken them and allow for greater Israeli control. Mm-hmm. By 1987, there's such great discontent that the first intifada begins with a great number of uprisings within Palestine and Israel of Palestinian groups with diverse missions and goals and tactics that they utilized using protests, civil disobedience, and violence. This is when Hamas is formally founded with the mission to eradicate Israel, to say that there is no two-state solution possible, Israel cannot exist, and they, they will use violence to ensure that's the case. By 1993, the Oslo Accords, organized by President Clinton, 
grant the Palestinian Liberation Organization authority over Gaza and some of the West Bank, and the PLO formally recognized Israel's right to exist. So they're meant to be movement toward a two-state solution. But there was never any real progress in that direction, with continued negotiations failing because of leaders on both sides essentially being unable to let go of some of their requirements, with Israel in particular not wanting to end their settlement campaign. In 2006, the Gaza Strip has a election that has Hamas legitimately elected into power over the Gaza Strip. And so they maintain their original mission of being against Israel wholly. So Israel responds with a whole blockade of all of Gaza. No one can go in or out by sea, by air, by land without Israeli permission or oversight, which has continued to this day and has led to Gaza being one of the largest humanitarian crises in the world, even before October 7th, where 2.1 million people were living in a space of about 25 square miles. It was massively impoverished, very little limited access to humanitarian aid, medical care, education, jobs, or anything else. Hamas has continued to have sporadic attacks against Israel in this time, leading to some, again, conflicts. Israel has intensified its annexation policies in the last several years, into the West Bank in particular, with armed settlers taking land by force, the far-right nationalist government under Netanyahu having greater political and ideological statements against Palestinians. And earlier this year, the essentially policing of the Al-Aqsa Mosque, one of the most holy sites for Muslims in Jerusalem, uh, with IDF forces going into the mosque itself. So all of that helps lay the stage for October 7th. The other issue that comes at play is that Israel has been in negotiations with other Arab states, especially in particular Saudi Arabia, which for the possible normalization of their relationships. Saudi Arabia being arguably the leader of Arab states, the idea that Saudi Arabia might normalize its relationship with Israel, recognizing them as a state, is something that would delegitimize Hamas and other militants who do not believe in any kind of two-state solution, which has also been a spark behind this most recent war, this most recent outbreak. And so Hamas launched these attacks into Israel on October 7th, knowing full well and with the goal of trying to create a massive Israeli response, knowing that Israel would respond with such overwhelming force that they would further increase the local resistance against them, hatred against them, as in this case, Israel starts a campaign of genocide where they are displacing, killing as many Palestinians as they feel like they can and have no movement toward a ceasefire or to a Palestine that could be ruled by Palestinians. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's one of those things that some people will be like, well, why would they do this initial bombing if they knew that there would be backlash way 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 worse but it's not simple like that 
when people have continually, day after day, year after year, decade after decade, been oppressed, been searched and seized whenever people feel like it, been prevented from any sort of movement, from having access to basic human rights, it does create a situation where well, we're already at war. We're already yeah. being killed. Maybe now the world will listen. Yeah. And uh, to some degree, that's true, right? Like, I follow Al Jazeera as, as the main place for news that is not with a Western bias. Mm-hmm. Very helpful, and everybody should uh, read their news. Uh And yeah, literally, I mean, well before this weekly, sometimes daily, there would be reports of killings or beatings or incarcerations of Palestinians just going about their day, you know, and that that does not justify, I mean, I'm I'm a pacifist, so (laughs) I am not for any killing of anyone, (laughs) Yeah, I, I condemn Hamas's terrorist attack. I also condemn Israel's counterattack. You know, uh, we had a conversation in my class uh, about the Armenian genocide, and a student asked, is what's happening in Israel-Palestine a genocide? And I said, Hamas has a genocidal intent, a genocidal agenda, goals, but they do not have the capacity to commit genocide because they simply don't have enough power or weaponry to be able to do that. Israel has both that genocidal intent and the capacity to carry it out, which they're utilizing. They are carrying out a genocide. Yeah, and, and you know, there there have been plenty of Jewish people as well, like, well before this, saying, we have to change our policies. Yeah. We have to. Like, it is creating circumstances that are going to explode, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I follow the direction of many Israeli and Jewish scholars and activists who see what's happening here and see the painting of this as being done for a Jewish homeland or the defense of Jews as genocide in their name. Mm -hmm. And that's why they speak out against it. Definitely. I mean, all of this obviously is horrible and heavy and we can feel very powerless in these circumstances, even while being citizens of the country with the majority of the power. Yet, I guess what I do take a little bit of heart in is seeing how this time there are millions of people standing up in solidarity with Palestinians in a way that we haven't seen before you know obviously social media helps with that being able to organize such things and record such things and whatnot but all all over the world protests in south africa a place that had been under apartheid Mm -hmm. for so long a place where injustices still exist protests in south korea protests in different european countries protests here in the united states these things are hardening, at least that the propaganda of governments <laughs> is not 
only writing. There are still way too many people who only believe the propaganda, some that is spread by, sadly, mainstream media that should be fact-checking or seeing where sources are coming from. But yeah, in Washington, D.C., an estimated 300,000 people came out for a queer solidarity march for Palestine. And you have an amazing group called Jewish Voice for Peace, which, yes, everybody should go to their website. It's just jewishvoiceforpeace.org. And they have several different, like, action items where you can so quickly and easily email your elected officials Mm -hmm. if you're in the United States or sign petitions. Including and beyond donating. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Yeah, and it's just, it's so important and definitely people that we should be following their lead and listening to their voices. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, obviously I share a lot of stuff (laughs) on our Instagram. (laughs) And there is some Palestinian journalist in Gaza that I follow. Yeah, there's just... There are a lot of people trying to fight for justice and trying to fight for justice in non-violent ways and we encourage you all to get involved with that too yeah we uh just the other day i participated in the asians for palestine zoom where it was like less than an hour long and collectively there were 1500 calls and emails done to u.s elected officials and so yeah it is the type of thing that we can do quickly, easily continue to put that pressure for ceasefire, for, I mean, ideally for reparations, Mm -hmm. but first things first, stop the mass killing of people and um, continually push back against any time, any people and any kind of governments dehumanize others yeah well we hope this has been helpful for you if you have comments you know your own expertise your own experiences to share we'd love to hear them questions you know we're happy to to share what we can but this was just our way of trying to yeah bring our own experiences our own perspectives and and you know what limited expertise we have to this platform so thank you for listening and i hope it's been helpful for you yeah, and there are plenty of organizations that you, if you want to donate, you can. You know, a, a huge one would be UNWFP, the mm-hmm. World uh, United Nations World Food Program that is still delivering food to Gazans and absolutely necessary things for survival. Yeah. Well, thank you very much for listening. We are going to return to our regular format next week so we hope that you'll follow us along what episode are we going to be watching we're going to be watching the first episode of season three of the magicians the tale of the seven keys so if you want something to sometimes distract yourself from all the horrors going on in the world not always (laughs) we have to lean in to the sadness and the uncomfortability and try to step forward into to action 
but there are also times that we need rest. Yes. <laughs> the magicians can be a great source of levity. Okay, well, we'll see you next week. Until then, geek, geek out. out.